Welcome back to the Greenhouse Podcast. This is a podcast for people who want to be more intentional, live into their purpose and potential. My name is Steve Perkins, and today I have a special guest named Justin Early, and he is the author of The Common Rule, which is a book a lot of people have been talking about lately. It's getting a lot of buzz and spreading really quickly. It's an award-winning book about habits of purpose for an age of distraction. And I think it's very fitting for the Greenhouse Podcast But Justin's also just a really great guy and really smart and thoughtful, but also practical in speaking from his life experience. And so he speaks about kind of his story of anxiety and distraction and how that led to where he's at now and the book that he wrote. Justin is also a lawyer by day and he has his own practice. He speaks often, although right now this is kind of period of quarantine and He's not doing as much of that, so he's working on some of his next writing projects. And I think you're just really going to get a lot of good thoughts, insights, and practical tips out of this interview. So without further ado, we will dive into the conversation. Hey, Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, thanks for coming on. This is exciting. I recently heard you speak at an event right before all this quarantine, so this will be fun to kind of do a digital version. I remember that. It almost seems illicit now to think back to times when we gathered in large groups (laughs) and gave talks. (laughs) (laughs) It was so risky. Yeah. Oh, man. That was was like right before I think everything began getting shut down. So yeah, yeah. thinking back, it's funny. That was very little on my radar then. And then the next week, everything totally changed. So rude of you to put us in harm's way like that. Yeah, truly. I, I actually learned, um, I just saw a, tw- a tweet by the other speaker at that event claiming that he was almost certain he had COVID in late February. And I was like, oh, great. That's when we shared a stage <laughs> talking together. And I'm sure afterwards I shook your hand, Steve. So who knows what oh, happened. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I shook his hand as well. So. No, he didn't take the antibody test yet. So we'll have to see. <laughs> well, it's really great to have you on the show. And um, like I said in the intro, Tommy Thompson has been talking about your book for a while, and I think we've referenced it on the podcast a couple of times. So this is a treat for us. I know everyone listening is interested in this topic and would love to hear more of your story. So maybe just start by sharing a little of your background. Like, Who is Justin, but how did you also get to this point of writing a book since authoring has not always been your focal point? Yes, indeed. I have always wanted to write. I never thought... I would come to writing through my greatest failure. But I often, I think that's actually how life unfolds. Your greatest failures are often the things that people learn from and thus want to hear you write about. So I'll begin kind of right in the middle of my story. In my first year of lawyering, I was working at a big law firm and I woke up one night with this sense of existential panic Mm. as if somebody had come in my room or there was an intruder, but of course nobody was there. So it was so weird that I woke up my wife and told her about it. And uh, I struggled to fall back asleep, but I managed to. The problem was the next night it happened again and I never fell asleep. And it was two nights later, heading towards the 48-hour mark of not sleeping, that I finally decided to go to the hospital where a doctor told me in one of the most anticlimactic moments of my life that nothing was actually wrong quote unquote, that I was just experiencing classic symptoms of clinical anxiety. 
And he sent me home with some sleeping pills. This was a remarkable moment for me because I was not the kind of person you would think of as high-strung, stressed out. And nonetheless, there I was entering into a phase of my life where I either had to take sleeping pills or eventually have a couple of drinks to fall asleep. Mm-hmm. And uh, I transitioned from the pills to a couple of drinks because the sleeping pills were working nightmarish, literally nightmarish functions on my, my mind. And so I hit this point in my very first year of lawyering where I was at absolute rock bottom. And my life before then had been really vision driven. I was a missionary in China for some point. I went to law school because I felt it was the right thing to do. I felt I was even on a a calling to become a lawyer. And yet it's funny that the former missionary became converted to the nervous medicating lawyer in such short order. And so everything or many things that I write about now stem from what happened in the wake of that. And that was me trying to figure out how was it that I got converted to this nervous medicating lawyer in such short order. Wow. That's pretty intense. How long of a period of your life was this, this part of the story unfolding? It was way too long. Because when you're at that kind of rock bottom, a year is a really long time. And um, I think it's helpful for me now to realize that difficult periods can be long periods. Because I, I remember even thinking the first or second week of this, like, okay, this is tough, but I got to get out. And if I had known then that it was going to be a year or more, <laughs> I don't know if I yeah. would have made it. Yeah. Um, but now having the knowledge that hard things can last a long time and, and yet there actually is meaning in them, suffering does produce strength and character. I now look back um, and see it much less as a nightmarish time and much more of a, I, I was I was being developed time. But it lasted a long time. It lasted about a year that I was really battling, battling anxiety and, and battling medicating that anxiety. And, and, you know, it might be useful for people to know that what I struggled with was not, you know, abusive medications or or alcoholism. Those are distinct things. And yet I was truly coping. And so it was a long, long year. And and interestingly, what got me into the next phase was by the end of that year, I tried medication. Like I said, I tried counseling. And um, those things had some helpful effects. But what really began to change things was one night I sat down with two of my best friends named Matt and Steve. And we were at a restaurant. And I remember putting this piece of paper on the table that had a program of daily and weekly habits on it. And the idea was a really last ditch effort um, that my wife and I had been sort of tinkering with. The idea was, let's see if we can rein in your chaos by some daily and weekly rhythms, which I didn't think were going to matter at all. But I was trying to be a good boy and sort of do what I was I was told. And so I was asking my friends that night to keep me accountable of sorts to living according to these daily and weekly patterns. And though I didn't think they would matter at all, I see now that that was because I had no idea then how much the most ordinary and mundane patterns of our days and weeks actually do affect our mental health, our emotional life in the most deep and extraordinary ways. And, and my life began to drastically change from that moment on. And that's when I really started to think about what was going on in my habits. So you're talking about the habits, the rhythms, the patterns. You guys sat down and 
and decided to give that a try. I mean, can you remember in that moment, what were you thinking about? What were you thinking about those? Because right now it sounds great from a story lens, but I can imagine in the moment, it's, maybe it feels like, really, like this isn't, this isn't going to do much. This can't really help. I mean, do you remember what you thought about that proposal or that idea? You know, I remember the time thinking that, okay, taking a day off a week seems like a nice idea, but it also seems a little quaint and um, maybe not that feasible for my, you know, the sense of self-importance that I had as a, a rising, you know, corporate lawyer. I, I remember thinking that I was probably just like everybody else, a little bit too tethered to my screens. So the idea of turning my phone off every evening for an hour or more, which was one of the habits, again, seemed nice, but a little quaint. They Lots of them seemed like the kind of life hacks or kind of productivity fixes that do seem neat, but not sort of powerful to shape a life. Mm-hmm. And I think what I realize now looking back is that I had no idea how much our, our life is actually built out of the accretion of these small habits. Mm-hmm. And everyone has a set of small daily and weekly patterns. And they are forming you into a certain kind of person. Uh-huh. The problem is most of us have no idea what they are, much less of an idea of how they're forming us. And so now I look back and I see, oh, you know, it isn't really the case that one little tiny change changes your whole life, but a couple tiny changes change a lot of things and there's a snowball effect. And that's when I just sort of realized that my hopes and visions of what life would become were not the only important thing. It was also really important of what my habits and rhythms were because those intertwine with your hopes and produce a kind of life. So I feel like it was the moment where I started paying attention to what was going on beneath the hood and whether that was aligning with my hopes and beliefs about who I wanted to become. Yeah, it's a very powerful idea to me that these patterns, these habits, these rhythms, they happen in all of our lives, whether we like it or not, whether we're trying or not. Yes. You spoke about this quite a bit on stage when I heard you and it was very, it left a lasting mark. I've thought about it quite a bit ever since. And I want to keep thinking about it more because it's the idea that you are going to have these habits that shape you, whether you like it or not, whether you're trying or not. So the question to me becomes, am I going to be intentional and step in there and have some say in what they are and how they're forming me or just kind of be at the mercy of whatever is unintentionally shaping me? That's right. I mean, I think the way, there are a lot of ways to put it. One way would be the question is not whether habits are going to lead your identity forward. The question is which habits are leading your identity forward. And you just have to ask yourself the simple question, do I care about who I'm becoming or not? If you don't, then keep going with the flow. If you do, (laughs) then habits are one of the things you must pay attention to. You don't have the option not to do them. Um, Any researcher who looks at it seems to find that somewhere around 40 to 50% of our daily choices are not actually choices. They're actions produced by habit. It's just an enormous amount of our life is taken up by habit. But actually, more importantly, what modern neuroscience has shown us is that it actually, on a neurological level, has a a way of leading who we become. Mm -hmm. 
And that's just sort of the simple, you know, we don't have to get into the depths of that, but it's the simple idea that habit activity works in the deeper parts of your brain, which is great because it frees up your top level thinking for other things. So you can drive home and make all the right turns and in theory, obey the stoplights, unless you have the bad habit of running them. But in, <laughs> yeah. in theory, you obey all the rules on the way home by habit because you're doing something much more important with your mind. The problem is when this is a bad habit, then we're hamstrung because our, you know, our head is going one way, but our habit is going the other way. Yeah. And the, the, the important insight here is that our sense of identity, what we love, what we're after, our passions, and at worst, our addictions, they tend to follow the habit. So, and this is how we end up in so many times in our life thinking, I wish I didn't do this kind of thing all the time, but nonetheless, we do it all the time. And yeah. um, it's because we haven't really figured out how to get control back of our head, take it out of the realm of habit and get it into the realm of head. And, and that's really because you can't, it's always happening habit. So the question of solving a habit is never to, to break it so much as to disrupt it with a new one. So, you know, you can never just leave a habit behind. You always have to replace it with a new one. And that's a lot of the insight that started to inadvertently change my life. Yeah. I like this idea of starts to indicate where you're headed for any of our kind of business-minded listeners. We were just actually earlier today at Greenhouse talking about lead indicators versus lag indicators and kind of right. how if you, can, if you can identify some lead indicators, the things that are starting to show you where you're headed, that's so much more powerful than a lag indicator, something that tells you data or where you're at after the fact and you can't really there's not much you can do about it at that point other than react Absolutely. and i never thought about it in terms of yeah the habits are similar they start to show us where we're headed who we are going to become mm -hmm. so where at this point in the story you had kind of reached a rock bottom and um, one of your last ditch efforts was thinking about these new rhythms what happened next well my life. I want to say my life began to dramatically change because it did. But of course, nothing is as overnight as it seems in the story that you tell afterwards. But I remember a point, it was probably about two months later, and it just stuck in my mind because it's one of those moments. I saw a friend at a wedding, and the friend knew that I was having an, you know, an awful year. Um, we knew each other well. And I remember him asking me how I was doing with that sort of look in your eye, you know, like, how are you doing? And for the first time in a long time, I remember looking back at him and said, I'm doing really well, actually. And I, that was like one of those moments where I was like, well, I just, I just said I'm doing well and I meant it. What is going on? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so that was the moment where I thought maybe this kind of new stuff I'm trying is having more of an effect than I thought. And essentially as somewhat a naturally curious person and somewhat as a lawyer prone to research and proving you know, what's happening. I really started to dive into reading about habits, about formation, um, identity formation, and also tinkering with them. So I started to try all these new ones and I started to talk about it all the time. And, <laughs> and, and eventually through the reading and the research, I just had these sort of wow moments of, oh my gosh, this, this idea of identity formation is way more important than we think. And by that, I mean, not just what do we have to do today, but who are we becoming today? Or not just the idea of what do we want to accomplish, but who are we? Mm -hmm. the, I, I just started to realize how significant identity formation is to who we are and how we feel and what we're after. And then I started to realize how significant habits were to that. 
And so that's when I just started really talking about it a lot, writing about it, and eventually distilling some of the habits into the ones that I thought were the keystone habits, which are the ones that I ended up writing about. Just to rattle off a couple, and we could go a lot of different directions here, but habits like taking a day off every week, habits like reading something before you look at your phone in the morning, habits like turning your phone off for an hour every day, habits like carving out a time, let's say one hour a week to have an actual conversation with a friend. These sort of things that seem mundane, a little life hackish, they were the ones that I started suggesting to other people and they would try them and be like, this is actually really disrupting my routine for the better. And so eventually I started to write about those when I started to get feedback from other people that these were the ones that were really working for lots of people. Yeah, the identity formation is powerful. I I was thinking about the idea that we kind of tend to sit down at dinner or talk at the end of the day and say, how was your day? And I don't know why I've been paying attention to that conversation with people. And it's in some ways, it's just a conversational norm. And that's fine. But if you really think about the content of the conversation, it's, well, it was either a good day or a bad day. And the judgment call of good or bad is usually based on like how the circumstances went. And if it was something that was difficult or a bummer or fun and good. Mm-hmm. And we can't control that. And life is going to have ups and downs. So it's odd that we would say the day is bad if you know things out of my control just didn't go as I wanted them. I guess the thing that strikes me about your comments here is if it's more about identity formation, who I'm becoming, that's a lot more in your control. And even if circumstances are not great, like all of us are experiencing a lot of right now, yes, right. You, you could still right. have a great day because you said, well, yeah, it wasn't fun, but I learned a lot or I really grew in this way or that way. That could be a good day, even if my circumstances are pretty bad. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that reminds me, I, I just read an incredible book that you and maybe a lot of your listeners have read before. It was about Ernest Shackleton's journey to try to cross the Antarctic in about 1915, I think. But the, the story in a nutshell is this guy named Shackleton takes 27 explorers to the South Pole with the goal of being the first people in history to hike across Antarctica. And they they fail miserably because before they even get to the coast of Antarctica to set out on folk to hike across it, which was the whole goal, their ship gets frozen in the ice (laughs) um, because, believe it or not, Antarctica was experiencing even colder temperatures than usual (laughs) that, that, that particular year. And so you have these 28 men frozen in the ice, stuck in a ship at the bottom of the world. And as if it can't get any worse, (laughs) um, in Antarctica, this thing happens called the polar night, where for about two months of the year, the sun doesn't even come up. And so this is famous for driving these, you know, insane explorers who are already crazy enough to do this, to drive them actually insane when they get stuck in the polar night and they don't see the sun for two months. (laughs) So, And so this story is told in a book by the name of the ship, and the sort of meaning of the tale, it's called Endurance. And, you know, it's history, so you'll know it or you'll read it on the first couple pages of the book. The most fascinating thing about this story is after being stuck there for two years, okay, can you have had this? Two years. Not only do all 28 men survive, but they actually do something that I find to be much more incredible. They become friends. And this story (laughs) of the people 
stuck at the bottom of the world in the worst of conditions to me is, and actually to many people, because this, this book has now become, it was written in the 1940s or 50s, I can't remember, but it's now become, you know, just a recurring classic tale because it shows that in the most difficult of circumstances, not only can human beings endure, but it's actually possible to thrive and create character. It's actually possible to form the kinds of identities that can endure and that kind of endurance leads to character. And this is just, you know, I I thought of that as you talked about the difference between circumstance and identity, because yes, over and over, great moments in histories and, and great moments in our lives show that the circumstance, whether suffering or triumph, is really not the point. The point is what kind of people are we becoming in that circumstance? And we could go on about this because what's amazing is if you look at the lives of these explorers during that time, a lot of what they fell back on is some really good habits. You will read over and over in their their tale that they journaled constantly. They read everything Mm -hmm. they could, even though over and over because it was limited on the ship. But there are times in their eventual hike out across the icebergs to safety where they opted to take their diaries instead of more food because they knew that this kind of life of self-reflection was fundamental to their survival, as fundamental as food. There's all these kind of neat outward rhythms they have about eating together, conversation, making fun of each other and putting on impromptu plays. And it it showed me that these like outward rhythms and habits of engaging in community, nurturing friendship in the most harshest of of times are, Mm -hmm. again, essential to survival. And so it's one of those really, really extreme but neat examples of what people will often say, and that is we don't really rise to the level of our hopes, we fall to the level of our habits. And one of the clarion calls to develop good habits is so that in crisis, you can be the kind of person that endures and creates character and leads the people around you to self-reflection and friendship. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. That's, that's really cool. I'm going to look that up. Um, yeah, if anybody who hasn't read the book, um, it's worth a read. I actually finished it. My best friend named Steve, who was one of the guys sitting at the table that night, Um, actually gave it to me. And uh, believe it or not, I finished it, I think the week before quarantine. So when, when our, when our polar night hit, I was like, I've seen this before. We we can, (laughs) we can make meaning in this ship, even though we're stuck here. (laughs) What's the name of the book? The name of the book is Endurance. Okay. Maybe we'll put a link to that in the show notes too. But I think this is also just really timely and helpful, given we're in the middle of the COVID pandemic and many people quarantine and and even looping back to something you said at the beginning your period of struggle and your story was a long a long time and now looking back you're able to see with such clarity and what good came out of it and both your story and this story kind of give some hope right now at least to me thinking about we're in this thing that feels very long and drawn out and a lot of uncertainty to how much longer it'll goes so that's mm-hmm. That's helpful. I want to kind of highlight in the book, you talk about this concept of your heart follows your habits. And I think you've been touching on this all along, but I'd love to just hear a little more of your thoughts around that. Yeah, I'll give you specific because I think that will help people see what I'm talking about. The idea in theory is that there is more to life than just education and what we know. There's also this huge area of formation It's what we do, what we practice, and who we become as a product of both. But as we've been talking about, a lot of our identity is about what our heart loves. And a lot of what our heart loves is where our habits lead us. So 
as I sort of began to analyze my pre-anxiety crash life, I started to think about what, where were my habits leading my heart during that time? So for example, you know, every morning during that time, the first thing that I would do in the morning is I would open my eyes and check my work email. Mm -hmm. Um, not because I was crazy or unlike anybody else. I mean, I think most people do this. (laughs) Um, It's because I wanted to do well at my job. And, you know, first thing in the morning, I just was wondering, what do I have to do today? You know? Yeah. Yeah. But what I realized is under the radar, my my heart or my identity is asking my phone a much more significant question. That is the, who do I need to become today in order to be approved of or lovable? And so it was that I sort of looked back on one small habit and started to realize that this is the power of habit, right? My brain, you know, in the, the basal ganglia part of my brain is just sort of, what do I need to do today? Just checking the phone every morning as a habit. I would have never thought that this was a major identity issue, but it started to become the kind of thing where if I don't know what I need to do, then I don't know who I need to, to please. I don't need to know what I need to do to be approved of. And so this, it, it became this sort of ritual of self-justification in the morning. I need to figure out how I'm going to earn my identity today. And this is the kind of, I would suggest that, you know, this is actually not overly existential. This is the kind of people we are when we really get down under the hood and think about it. And little habits like checking our phone first thing over the morning will happily lead our heart to undesirable places. Another one was just uh, the idea I mentioned earlier of turning our phone off for an, an hour each day. You know, I started to realize that the habit of always checking every single notification when it came up and trying to respond in real time, whether it was, you know, a meme and a text message from a friend or an important client email or an unimportant client email. This this whole idea that I needed to be always on call and always responding was leading me to this idea of the urgent is important. And I need to stay in the area of the urgent if I want to stay, you know, relevant to things and relevant to people. And uh, again, there was this idea that I'm not worth my salt if I'm unplugged. And just changing those two habits by inserting tiny habits of I won't check my phone in the morning until I've read something, or I'm going to turn off my phone every evening as a rhythm, has just done massive habit and identity shift in sort of realigning and, and dislocating those moments out of the phone and saying, are you able to sit in silence? Like, who are you if it's just quiet? Who are you if you just have to go to something to read or just sit and drink coffee in the morning? And those started to form new patterns of thinking, who am I? And so it's just, you know, massive shifts started happening. But I would suggest that it has a lot to do with the area of love and identity and what you love. Hmm. Yeah, that's something I love about your book and how you talk about all this is it's so much deeper than just habits and hacks. But but even on the level of the habits and hacks, I love that rhythms, in a sense, they're kind of better than goals. You know, if if a goal is like one and done, you check it off the list. A rhythm is a continuous goal over time. It's like something that keeps forming who you are and, and has a snowball effect. And that feels so much weightier to me or so much bigger and better. Yes. There's a lot more substance there than just a little 30-day challenge type of goal or something, you know, yes, lose 10 yes. pounds type of goal. It's like, okay, great. But what's the lasting effect of that? Absolutely. And I, and I love goals. I mean, I love 
New Year's resolutions and goals in a way. But what I hate is a goal without a habit or, or a, a resolution without a rhythm. The, the <laughs> idea that we could get healthy this year is absurd to me. But the idea that you could go to the gym today is extremely low-hanging fruit. Yeah. You know, and, and so there, I love making goals, but I've come to the place now where if you look at a page on which I make goals, the goal is on the very far right-hand side of the page. It's like the end thing to check off. And then I will go before it and create a couple boxes and say, what, what's the daily rhythm? What's the weekly rhythm? What's the monthly rhythm? What's the quarterly rhythm that is going to make me the kind of person that can actually check off this goal at some point? Hmm. And then you know, stop looking at the goal. Just look at the daily, you know, look at the weekly. This is, you know, totally true for me in exercise. It's also true for me in writing. It's true in my family life. It's true in my work life. I mean, all of this stuff, this paradigm is, I look through habits to goals now. You know, unsurprisingly, it works a lot more. I have a lot, the goals start to eventually get achieved. Yeah, and it works. Yeah. Hey, everybody, um, and this stuff works too. Yeah, that is well, an added benefit. It actually does work. <laughs> uh, this is so fun. I feel like we could go for hours. So maybe in the future, we'll have to have you back and after everyone gets a chance to read your book. So the common rule, everyone pick it up. Uh, link will be in the show notes as well. And Justin, if people are interested, where can they find you or find more of what uh, what you're doing? Um, the earlylegalgroup.com is my um, legal website. So that's where you can find me in, in that professional capacity. Or thecommonrule.org is where um, I write about the habits and the book that I've written. It might be obvious from some of the comments that I'm skeptical and engage on a limited basis on social media. However, I am there. So on thecommonrule.org, <laughs> you can find you know Twitter and Instagram handles, and I do some of that. And I eventually respond to people not in real time. I've learned that that's dangerous to try to respond to all your Instagram notes in one day. But uh, people can definitely find me, definitely reach out and contact me on either of those websites. Cool. Thanks so much for hanging out. Yeah, yeah I've loved it. Thanks so much for the great question. 